Mandy Bynum McLaughlin, thank you so much for being here on the Epic Humic podcast. Uh, Mandy is the CEO of Black BC, and we're thrilled to have you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Appreciate it. Um, so, so we've known each other for uh, a short time. Yeah. I've, I've been involved with Black BC for a little while. Mm -hmm. um, really love the organization, love the mission, love the people. Um, and so I'd love to share with our audience, yeah. you know, from your perspective, what is Black VC? What's the origin and how do you get involved? Yeah, so I will start in the middle. So Black VC is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that works to empower, um, engage and activate Black check writers within the venture capital ecosystem. So whether that's people who have not yet made a venture capital uh, investment, whether it's people who are already in the industry, or um, early career folks who are looking to get a job in venture capital. Mm. Um, the origin story, I this is the part that I really love because uh, I essentially spent my career building affinity groups and employee resource groups. Um, I was a global head of DNI, and that's what Black VC was in the beginning. It was two people who were early-ish in their career, uh, Sydney and Fred, Rick, Frederick. Sydney and Frederick, uh, who were in venture capital and just were like, where are all the black people? So they started getting folks together. It grew to other cities. And eventually, people got word and started giving them funding for these events. Um, and they realized that there just were not enough people like us in the venture capital ecosystem, um, specifically investing. So they started going into uh, employee resource groups at tech companies or, or venture arms of larger corporations and started activating check writers and activating angels um, to the point where they started a, a, a program called Black Venture Institute with really essential partners from within that corporate venture arm. And from there, we have built three really amazing programs and are going to be creating some more in the next year. One of those is Black Venture Institute, which is just like one of the coolest programs ever. And it's how I got into Black VC. Um, it is folks from all over the tech industry, from um, arts and entertainment. We have professional athletes, um, all sorts of badassery essentially within the black community coming together to go over things like term sheets or like case studies. Um, and not only are we going over those case studies and term sheets, but we're essentially looking at all the racism within them and saying like this, this is how venture capital works, but it's not how it's going to work for us. Um, and we get into those really amazing conversations and the folks who who come to speak at those are people who have pivoted into venture as black people who are former professional athletes who, you know, were probably told this would never be something that they would have and be able to do in their career. Um, so that's one of our, our flagship programs. We also have Breaking Into Venture, which is for early career folks who want to work at a venture firm and we get them jobs. We get them jobs and we get them interviews at venture firms. Um, the last one is our scout program, which is essentially where people who have gone through any of our programs who want to become angels, want to become LPs, want to start syndicates, we teach everyone how to do that and bring people into the conversation. And, and what I find is so fascinating and reminds me why it's so important for us to do this work is that uh, 
no one who comes into Black VC is unintelligent. In fact, everyone's probably the most excellent person in their space, yet haven't been invited into the conversation around venture. And so oftentimes we just realize in these programs like, oh, shit, it's not that hard. <laughs> or it's not that complicated, but it's meant to be complicated so that it's exclusionary. Um, and so people start syndicates uh, within Black, for Black Venture Institute. The founders of the Cap Table Coalition were in the first cohort of Black Venture Institute. Um, there's just been so much amazing stuff that's happened um, that I'm just so proud to be a part of it. And as someone who felt on the outside of venture capital just three years ago, when I made my uh, first angel investment, which went terribly wrong, uh, learned a lot, though, and uh, invested as an LP in two funds, um, the, the amount of things that I've learned just about myself and the value that I bring is the biggest thing that, that I think happens within Black VC is just we start to realize our own value and start to really lean into our amazing, authentic blackness and just do the damn thing. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, well said. Well said. Um, and, and just to add maybe some um, some clarity to the state of VC, mm -hmm. you, you're probably more up to date on like the latest facts and figures, but maybe maybe just set help set the stage for like the disparity that w we're trying to address. Yeah. Um, I don't have the exact numbers, but they're all less than 1%, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, in 2020, the amount of funding that went to Black founders um, increased by something like 50%, which might sound cool, but when you look at the disparity between um, the amount of money that's invested in Black founders, uh, founders of color, women founders, and white cis hetero male founders, it's the gap is ridiculous. Um, and Black women founders have always received less than 1%. It's like 0.006% of the overall funding that's within venture capital going to founders. That's the disparity. What we focus on at Black VC, which has been super powerful, is what I was talking about before, is, is leaning into our excellence and saying, like, this is this is not something that is woe is me that we need, like, our quote unquote allies to, to help fix for us. It's just get out of our way. We're going to do it ourselves. And if you don't want to join in, in the party, well, that's that's your loss. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we've been able to build and what we're really focusing on is how do we how do we leapfrog from the generations of um, racism that has put us behind, that has systemically put us behind, and how do we make those leaps to like catch up a few generations to create generational wealth within the Black community? Absolutely. The the statistic that that I always think about, um, which is which is slightly different, is that if you think about the United States and all of the AUM that's managed. Uh, the amount that's managed or the percent that's managed by diverse and female managers is 1.4%. Is it that high? <laughs> I, <laughs> you must have a different... <laughs> only, people that, only people in our community would, would have that reaction. But most people outside would say, wait a second, that includes female? Like 50% of our population, 55% of college grads are female? Like... That's that's a shocking statistic for most people that aren't in it every day right. like you and me. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I wanted to I wanted to talk to you a little bit about like this whole like pipeline issue. And, and you sort of talked about it a, a little bit um, in terms of the different stages. But 
in, in my just rudimentary view, not in it like you are every day, you know, you've got the university system, right? Um, you've got uh, you've got people getting their first jobs, whether it's in directly into VC, which is rare, or into tech, or into finance, <clears throat> or into another kind of uh, occupation. Then you've got like sort of the the awareness of VC. A lot of people don't even know what VC is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I sure didn't when I was in my twenties or mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, out of college. Then you've got people who are interested and want to break in. Then you've got people who are in it. They finally broke in, but it's not trivial to stay in either, right? You've right. got to stay in and progress in a in an environment that we can get into. And then beyond that, it's okay. You 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 working in venture. You've made some investments. Whatever. How do you start your own fund? Right. Right. And so I feel like each of those is a step uh, in the in the whole like pipeline and process. What do you think in terms of where the biggest challenges are along that path and and where we have and, and the organization has the most potential to make the biggest impact? Very simple question. <laughs> so simple. Gosh, it's going to be so easy. So let me start start with uh a framework I, I talk about a lot, which is the decolonization of wealth. Uh, Manuel Villanueva is an author who um, has American Indian heritage, grew up in North Carolina, um, is very much within the philanthropic organization. And his book talks about philanthropy and how um, a lot of the large philanthropic organizations, the reason they were really started in the first place is because property tax became a thing. And so a lot of very wealthy white people needed a way to save their money. So they started creating these foundations and they could allocate, you know, 5% of their riches to like uh, charity organizations. And therefore they could create entire businesses around, around this whole thing. And so what ended, what has ended up happening is that you have people, he, he calls it the ivory, ivory tower decision-making, which is not a, a new framework, but you have, very white, very wealthy, very out of touch people making decisions to give charitable donations to uh, people at the lowest part of the community based on data. No experience, no actual connection to the people within these communities. And what ends up happening is that money gets so diluted or it goes to such the wrong places that it ends up having it just continues to perpetuate the racism that they're they're attempting to solve in the first place. So because that whole middle is skipped, there's a there's a huge a huge impact and a, and a huge population of people who have been missed. So that's the first thing. The second part is our generation, millennials, um, Gen Gen Y, millennials, and Gen Zs. A lot of people of color are not poor. Our parents are poor. Our parents grew up in the projects. Um, our parents worked really, really hard um, to save money, to buy houses, to somehow get within the system so that they could create generational wealth. So right now, a lot of the folks who are in with, were within the Black BC community did not come from poverty. Um, they went to really great undergrad schools, whether they got there via scholarship or what have you, they're really well educated. Um, they may have gone to grad school. They are the top Per, you know, they're the top of the top, if you will. And those are the people who are getting these diverse 
when people want to hire for diversity in these like mid to senior level roles within tech, these are the people who are getting the jobs. And that's a, such a small percentage of the communities of color. Um, yet the information we have access to as a, as a small community is insane, yet we don't quite have the generational wealth to have the impact that we know it can probably have. Following me so far? Yes. Okay. So within Black VC, it's really activating that community that has all of the education, frankly, all of the networks, but maybe there are certain very particular conversations like venture capital that we have not been a part of. Um, and so what we are essentially solving for is how do we expand that group so that on both ends, all aspects, they can have an impact on those communities that they came from, um, that they are closest to, as opposed to being completely skipped in terms of in terms of the impact. So as we as we all um, and and our group is so diverse. We have so many um, immigrants from Africa or like first generation African folks. We have Afro Latinos. Um, we have like black Americans, we have people who are light-skinned, people who are dark-skinned, um, and the amount of innovation we are able to create because we all have this one very um, acute understanding of what it's like to be black in America, that we have a really great understanding and we are relentlessly supportive, supportive of each other. So um, I can't remember exactly the question now, but I, I hope that that yeah. kind of answers no, it. no, you did, you did, uh, because I, I was asking about like that pipeline, right? And and where, like, where yes. in those different steps? It sounds like, <clears throat> if I if I can paraphrase, it sounds like you're saying, post university, post education, post building great networks, building great careers, it's this maybe this gap between, okay, professional, you know, starting to build some personal wealth into exposure and education around what is VC, you know, and how do we, how do we get there? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for example, I, I made more money than both my parents combined by the time I was 30, but mm -hmm. my parents were not poor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they mm -hmm. did a really great job of saving. They were really frugal. They were both retired soon after 60. However, the things that I can do is so much more than they were able to do um, simply because of the work they did for me to get to this spot. And um, what I think ends up happening is you have a lot of, for example, um, artists or professional athletes who are also at this point of an enormous amount of access that their community or their parents didn't have. And they don't really have any place to go and people to trust who are not white who are also black. And a lot of the advice they might be getting are from those earlier generations, which don't really match up with what we're doing now. We have a little bit more dispensable income so that we can take more risk, whereas our parents or our communities would not be taking risk at all. They wouldn't be even opening up credit cards because someone might come after them. And so um, it, it's really important to hold these spaces for this particular group of people so that we can have a safe space to say, like, here's exactly what you do in venture. Here are the, the investments you shouldn't make. Even if you want to invest in black founders, here are the things that you have to look for because we have a habit of saying yes to everyone in our community to the point where we don't have any money left for ourselves. Like we're always giving back and looking to build on our build build our community, but we have to do it smart. And we have to understand um, what our individual 
value is that we bring because it's different than everyone else. So when it when it comes to pipeline into venture, like we're coming from all different spaces. Um, however, when we're interviewed or when we are seen by um, limited partners or institutions who might be investing in us, we're all the same. Mm-hmm. And we're all compared against each other and, and made to be explicit about the differentiation between us and the next black woman when because we're competing for like a very small percentage of of money that's being allocated to people like us. Um, So when it comes to scarcity and abundance, it's really kind of being smart about the folks that we communicate with, the people who are outside of our community so that we don't get in these traps of white supremacy. We don't get in these traps of of whiteness um, so that we can continue to succeed within our community and do the right thing for one another and continue to trust our, our how innovative we all are. You know, I hadn't thought about this until just now, but, um, uh, you know, I advise a, a lot of people who are interested in getting into venture. And one of the unique aspects of venture capital is there are so many different paths in. Or, That's right. or, and there are so many different backgrounds that people have. Some people mm-hmm. come from from tech, from from iBanking, from consulting, from uh, media, right? From university, like there's so many different paths in. Mm -hmm. So there's no like one set track where you can say like, hey, you got to do two years. I bank, you got to do this, you got to do that. Um, And so, so I always tell people like, in a, in a sense, like anyone can get in, which is exciting, right? But it also means that you're competing with everybody who has an interest in in getting into venture. Mm -hmm. Um, And I find that oftentimes, um, one of the traps is <clears throat> because there's no there's no path and there's no kind of well understood credentials that there's this affinity bias thing that I've talked about where you know it, it spans all different sorts of dimensions right mm-hmm. it can be racial it can be gender but it can also be oh you were a product manager I was a product manager you're going to do great right right That's or it. you went to that undergrad I went to that undergrad you're going to do fantastic and I don't think even people recognize it right? Mm-hmm. They're biased. Yep. But if you push push that to a so, to the side, right? Because that's something you can't control, right? Mm-hmm. What your background is. I would say the other two things you can you can do are one is 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 kind of hustle and passion. And I think you kind of have to have that. You have to like want to do venture like more than anything else and be sure. People who are like, oh, I might want to do venture or this or that or the other thing. I'm like, no, that's not it's not for you. Um, yes. Because you need to have that passion. You need to have that hustle. But then the other thing is the the network the understanding the the intelligence around um the knowledge around what makes for a good investment and i think that's really where you know we we you guys are doing amazing work right in terms of expanding that knowledge base so that you can you know if you have the hustle and the passion you have you have the knowledge like you like we talked about a lot of these folks have networks have come from great universities have great backgrounds putting it all together um, to, to make, you know, for a, a powerful candidacy. Yeah. And I, I always remind people, especially for listeners, that whiteness is not a person, it's a system. And so the whiteness in America is very linear. Everything is very linear. Like when you get into this role, here's exactly, you know, within six months, you should be here. Within 12 months, you should be here. And like, there's just one path for you. And so in our society, that's often what we think, but like our community does not work that way. We we have it. We can't because if we try to be linear, there will ultimately be 
a rule change or something in the way that doesn't allow us to like take that next step. So we have to jump around. We have to be creative. We have to be able to do many different types of things, which makes us more creative, which makes us more innovative. And so you're right. Like what Black VC does is not necessarily try to give people a path, which I think is a is a general understanding when people get into the room, when they just see who's in the room. They're like, holy shit. Like the GC, the general counsel for the NFL is here. Like the uh, chief of staff for aerial investments is here. Like these are really amazing people. And it's like, all of us don't know enough about venture. <laughs> what the hell? How did we all get to this point? Um, and I think there's a there's a very cool, magical thing that happens that says, like, shit, we can do this. We can do this. Like, we're going to go over these, these, like, linear cases. We're going to see how the white people did it so that we know what we're up against, essentially. And then we're able to go off, branch off, create these amazing innovative funds or, like, different ways of doing venture investing, um, which ultimately has amazing impact that we weren't able to have before in our own silos. Mm. That that spurred a thought, um, which is I would I would reemphasize that 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 community connection, like actually having a community, it it does give you confidence, right? When you see someone else who it really inspires you, whether a few years ahead of you or even behind you, and you're like, wow, like our community is like really strong. And and I I, I agree with something else you said earlier in that it's a it's a very welcoming community, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I come from more of like Caribbean background or whatnot, and and I felt, you know, just like it was not an not an non-issue, right? It's just mm -hmm. like everyone's in the tent. Right. Um and then I, uh, I, the other piece is like where I guess where I've been based on where I am right in in my journey right I've been more thinking about like the the latter part of the pipeline it's like okay you know when, when during the pandemic I ran a, a virtual event around like okay you got into venture now what right right because it is it's not like you were talking about it's not linear it's not oh I got into venture I'm I'm set. Right? right, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be associate, then a senior associate, then a VP. It's it's a very um, non-linear, stochastic um, career building exercise, and you have to have the right kind of risk tolerance for it. Mm -hmm. um, but I I was in venture for nine years, and I, I I I being totally honest when I tell you I did not even think about this. This did not thought did not occur to me until I was like nine years in. Mm -hmm. And I stopped and I thought about it. And I said, huh, I've been in venture nine years and I've never worked with one other person um, that it, it, in, in at any of my firms that were black or uh, or Latino, Latina. And I worked with two females. Right. And it was like, whoa, like what's going on here? And um, I, I, I wrote that on Twitter and I got like roasted. I'm sure you um, did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it, it's true. And and so and then when you go back to that, you know, that statistic around like owned and managed, it's like, OK, we're, we're driving towards something, but we, we've got to get over like the last hurdle so that we can get to that point of like to use the word you, you talked about, like decolonizing wealth and whatnot. Um, and then that can be, you know, reinvested and, and, and energize the community. So, mm -hmm. so that's why I'm excited to, to work with you on the, uh, the emerging manager initiative, which is, you know, still in the early stages, but, um, I think has a lot of potential yeah. at Black BC. Yeah. It's going to be, it's, it's a really exciting conversation. And I think something that I've always had to 
move through in my career is understanding that we don't have the answers, but what we're doing is finding the answers. We're not coming to everyone with the answers. And the the beauty is in that process because when you're doing it right, you're ultimately going to have more questions and answers, which are going to lead to more questions. And in the process, you are you are solving for the original things, but it's it's continuing to try to get to the root of what is the issue here. And ultimately, it's whiteness. Ultimately, it's white supremacy. Ultimately, it's the patriarchy. <laughs> but there's only so many of those things that we can control or solve. And it's really about getting creative around how we can innovate within our community. So, so let's talk a little bit about you. Um, tell us about you know where you're from, what it was like growing up, and, and how that's impacted you. Yeah, um, hugely. My parents met in D.C. My mom is Italian-American. Um, her family is from Syracuse, but like from Queens. Um, my grandmother is from uh, Piedmontese in Italy, which is northern Italy. Um, and my dad's family is from the eastern shore of Maryland, Cambridge, um, which is where Harry Tubman is, Tubman is from. So we are indeed related loosely. Um, and they met at GE in the 80s. My dad soon after moved to IBM, uh, but both my parents were engineers, very much nerdy engineers. Um, and from Maryland, uh, my dad was able to get a promotion. Move, we moved to North Carolina, which is Research Triangle Park, RTP, yep. Um, we're there for six years. And I think that was probably the most um, uh, impressionable time in my life because in the South, especially in North Carolina and especially being middle class, um, I felt very much like I didn't fit in anywhere. Like I wasn't really black enough for the black kids, definitely wasn't white enough to hang out with the white kids. So found my home in the arts, <laughs> uh, was dancing, was in choir. Um, and that ended up being the, demo the most diverse part of the school for me. Um, and I really found I found my people, I suppose. From there, we moved to San Jose in 99, right before the dot-com boom. And it was so eye-opening. It was the first time uh, that I had had strong relationships with, with people from Southeast Asia, from India, who acknowledged race right away, whereas in the South, it wasn't acknowledged at all. Um, and in fact, like it was whispered, which was I just found so strange when I was living there. And in the Bay Area, I learned a lot more about tech. And uh, I went to all the bring your daughters to work day, all the bring your kids to work day. And I'm like, I definitely don't want to work, work at a boring place like this. Um, and would see signs of like um, in a world with no fences, who needs gates? And like so I'd learned what that meant when I was like 12. 13. I still don't exactly know what it means, but I I, I know it inherently. <laughs> mm. um, and so I had a computer when I was nine. Um, uh, and I realized that these were a lot of things that a lot of people didn't have. Um, I also tore my ACL four times yeah, in high school. And so I thought I was going to be Mia Hamm and go to UNC. Um, I made varsity as a freshman. Like I was <clears throat> a badass striker. And then I couldn't be so I started playing water polo naturally. Never swam, drowned for a week. But as soon as I got my legs under me, um, I did really well and ended up playing water polo in college, got recruited, um, and started my, my freshman year in college. 
And I also went to a PWI, predominantly white institution in Pennsylvania, um, that my year had recruited, recruited a lot of people from California. So I felt very fish out of water at a school like this, where there was wealth that I had just had never seen before. Um, and it really opened my eyes to like, holy crap, like this is next level. Like these kids here are never going to have to worry about anything, literally nothing. Um, and most of the people of color were athletes, but none of them were on the water polo team. <laughs> 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 we ended up getting more uh, when, like during my junior, senior year. Um, so all of this to say that I've had a lot of different experiences growing up, being around a lot of different communities, which I think helped me figure out what was special about me. Um, and also made me an arrogant asshole when I was in college, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was really good at athletics, um, I didn't love college. I got straight A's in high school and and almost like failed out my freshman year. Um, and I realized that a lot when they uh, the prep schools are actually prep schools. I went to a public school, which is like high, one of the highest rated in the country, but all of my classmates had gone to prep schools, and so college was easy for them. It was not for me. So I think if I hadn't if I wasn't playing sports and didn't have that that innate sense of focus, school would have been really, really hard. Um, I also didn't really know what I wanted to do, um, but I was always told I'd be good at sales. Started selling copiers, it was my first job out of school, then went into selling radio, um, and then ended up at Yelp as like employee 108. Started as an AE, calling small businesses, selling advertising, was able to see that company go public, um, from a, a point where I was managing teams, helping build out the sales function. Um, and I was able to buy a house with that, which, you know, never thought I would be able to do. From there, I was also able to take a six-month break and figure out what I wanted to do. And I knew that tech was not the or, – or working at startups and watching them go public, especially in these white spaces, was just not what I wanted to do long term, but also knew that it would – I was good at it, and that would be how I made money until I found the next thing. Um, and that's when I started getting more involved with employee resource groups and building different parts of the business outside of sales um, to the point where I, I started our um, global DEI practice at the last SaaS company where I was employed. Also uh, started going to therapy and started understanding that I didn't being my own boss was probably something I needed to, to do long term. Started my own consulting company where I worked with chief people officers um, to, to really build out their DEI plan from a, from a space of equity. And also worked with philanthropic organizations where I got really into the decolonization of wealth. And also started investing. Um, and during the pandemic, I was home. My kids were on the floor all the time. I was like losing my mind. Um, but I did get really into startup investing. Also started to understand that my value um, is something that I can bring to a lot of founders, not just one. I realized the difference between what it means to be an angel investor and a limited partner. And I was like, limited partner is my jam. I don't have to do any of the hard work. <laughs> I can do all the fun stuff. And when we get returns, I can take credit for it. <laughs> Uh, so that's that's kind of how I got to to where I am. I I just love what love what I get to do from the place where I get to do it. Um, we are in a lot of really special rooms where people are making big changes and doing really big things. 
Um, and I'm just, I feel like this is something I've manifested for a really long time. And the only thing that worries me next is like, what am I going to do next? Mm. Lot to unpack there. Um, one thing I'm, I'm curious about, was there a big difference between, it sounds like there was a big difference between San Jose uh, and college, mm -hmm. but I would expect San Jose and like the tech boom to kind of years, that would have been an affluent kind of uh, place to to be from as well. One would think, yeah. But but it did. But in, in reality, it wasn't. Didn't feel that way. Or San Jose in the '90s and early aughts, especially in in like South San Jose, like Facebook started in 20, 2004. Google started like right around that time, and so San Jose was still like kind of a farm town. Oh wow! For the most part, Almaden, the south the South Bay was uh, people who had been there for generations who were farmers, um, and so. It, it was a really interesting mixture at my high school because there were a lot of people who were moving to San Jose who were working at these bigger tech companies at the time, which were IBM, um, which were GE, which was Intel, things like that. Um, but it was still transitioning. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the wealth, I don't think, was quite realized to the point it is now. Um, whereas where I went to school on the East Coast, it was like generations and generations of wealth already established. I see. I see. Interesting. Interesting. So this is this is a, a misconception that I have had about Silicon Valley and, and a lot of people probably have as well. Um, I also identify with like creative communities being more accepting. Um, I got into theater when I was in high school, yes. for, uh, I think subconsciously for that reason as well. Mm -hmm. um, what about <clears throat> give us some insight, and I, I literally have very little insight into this, but like, give us some insight into that, like that DEI world at like large corporations. Like, what did you what did you take away from that experience? Like, what what is it like being in that environment? I had a community of other DEI practitioners, which was very helpful. Before I got into the role, I a was coming from the revenue side of the house where I could kick down, down doors and be like, I need this tomorrow, today, yesterday, and I would get it right away. Moving over to the people side, which is considered a cost center because it's the it's, it's CYA team. It's all about compliance. There's not a lot of budget. Everything's very tight. Um, you have to really fight for everything you get. And people who are in people ops are not salespeople. So they're not always thinking about how do I get this? How do I get this for myself? Um, and so it was really, really hard at first. Um, I was really impatient and I knew what I wanted. And I was on a team of people who were like, you need to be patient. Mm -hmm. You need to slow it down because you're going to make us look bad or you're going to screw this up for us. We've been working really hard. Um, and it was it was huge. And finding that that balance between, OK, what's my long play here? What do I want? ultimately within a certain time period and how do I work backwards from there and make small wins because empathy is a really long sales cycle. <laughs> it's not something that happens in, in 90 days or even a month and you have to take one win at a time. And so for me, I gave myself two years in this particular role and I talked with a lot of other people in my space of like, what what have you been able to accomplish? I saw a lot of people who had been in DEI for 20 years, which is not a good sign. Being in sales for 20 years is a good sign because it means you're probably kicking ass. But if you're in DEI for 20 years, you probably aren't kicking ass because 
whatever you're doing is not creating the D, the E, or the I. Uh, and so it was really, really tough. It was tough. And um, but I got really good at building long term strategies. I got really good at building decks. I got really, really into people data. I've always been into data just full stop, but people data specifically, like how do you cut data? How do you ask questions of data? How do you intersect people data so that when you're when you're going to like a white chief product officer who probably doesn't know much about racism or or how has not really done the internal work to think about like their privilege. How do you help them understand that they need to give you $100,000 to do XYZ program so that they can hire more diverse people on their team? Like the end goal was still the same, but like how we got there was not. Their ideals were a little bit different. Um, And also just seeing different cultures around the world and understanding their own DEI issues or lack thereof in their minds and really trying to meet them where they were. So I went to Portland. I was in Portland every week. That's where our engineering team was. Um, And Portland's a really interesting place, really fascinating place. It's very white, but also very progressive. Um, I was in London, in Dublin, um, and in London, and specifically like the they're like the OGs of racism. And so having <laughs> some sort of DEI <laughs> workshop, it's like, okay, here comes this American in here with like all your American shit. And like, we don't have these problems here. It's like, okay, where's all the people of color in this room? No. <laughs> I see them out on the street, but not in here. Um, and so it's really, how again, how do we meet people where they are? And how did I, how did I allow myself to understand that I wasn't going to change people's hearts and minds, but what could I change? And what I ended up developing in those two years is like, you know what? These white folks, I can't do that much for them. I just can't. (laughs) What I can do is take their money and do something really impactful that's going to be meaningful that they don't really need to know anything about because they're not going to understand it anyway. So that's what I got really good at at the end. Tell it like it is. I like it. I mean, it's important work, and it's uh, and and I, I, it it, it aligns with my um, my suspi- my suspicion or my expectation that it does require a lot of patience and uh, a certain kind of person. Um, let's talk about you mm-hmm. and like the type of person you are. Um, well, let's start with the 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 one we've talked about before, which is uh, what's something you believe that other people do not believe. I'd say there's two things. One, I believe in gravity. I'm not super into organized religion, but I do believe in astrology. Mm, okay. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say I necessarily believe in astrology, but I believe in the framework of astrology in that we track something that has been consistent, that has been constant, and we interpret it how we want to interpret it. However, it helps us find perspective in our lives is how we interpret it. That's what I absolutely love about the practice, whereas religion is very much like, here are the rules that you need to follow. Um, Often with religion, it's very male-centered. And with every religion that I know, very often very little about, I grew up in a Catholic household, Um, I just never felt like it was for me. Like, it just never really, I never really connected to it. But I do know that as a species, we have this amazing capacity to believe in something bigger than us, believe in something that doesn't physically exist, 
um, and we have the capacity to build language around it, which I think has always just been so, so fascinating. Um, and the study of the stars has been something that's been going on since the beginning. Um, and it's just a fun study. Like the more I learn about it, the more it helps me figure out like what what is magical about me, whether I believe in what I'm reading or not. The second thing <laughs> is um, this is something that people really close to me get really pissed off about <laughs> is that I just don't get really upset about things, specifically around losing things <laughs> or like making mistakes around things that are replaceable. Um, and I think for generations before us, those boomers, you know, they took really great care of their things, very frugal. Um, you don't lose your watch. You don't lose your headphones. And when I was growing up, I lost it all the time, all the time. And I was like, why? It's replaceable. <laughs> it's just cleats. <laughs> just soccer cleats. It's just a water bottle. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my parents would be so upset. And I can completely understand because in my mind, I'm like, well, we have money to get another one. It's just a water bottle. Whereas like they had to fight for everything. Um, and so I've worked really hard to to have empathy and compassion for that and just form a deeper connection to like my unattachment to things because I do think when we are very attached to things that are replaceable or relationships or even groups of people, like it's only doing damage to ourselves. We're only hurting ourselves because those other things are not, the cleats are not worried. <laughs> Some raccoon is having a good time with those cleats. <laughs> so the practice of just being able to let go of things, let go of situations um, is something that I, I truly believe is so imperative to like just mental health in general. Wow. Wow. I'm, I'm really impressed with that answer. Um, because, because it's so that last one, it's so multi-layered, right? Because, and I, I wrestle with the same thing. Um, on one hand, like detachment and <clears throat> detachment from the material world is important, but then there's this other feeling of like guilt and like family experience around not wanting to, you know, waste. And, uh, and I, I wrestle with the same thing, honestly. Um, and then the astrology one is interesting because um, yeah, I, I recently moved, right, to mm -hmm. an area uh, close to you. Indeed. Where, uh, where you can actually see the stars, yeah. uh, unlike, <laughs> unlike the city. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, I'm, I, I'm perplexed and amazed by it. Like, uh, I, and I don't know, I have, plans to buy a telescope that hasn't happened yet but um, but I want to do it I know someone you should talk to oh yeah he's retired you got a guy has way too much time on his hands sends me pictures of the moon all the time <laughs> from his telescope okay it's my dad <laughs> <laughs> I think me and your dad would get along um yeah so uh, but the astrology thing is interesting because I think you know I, I've never really gotten into it but there's a lot of educated, intelligent, you know, accomplished people who are, who are into it. Mm -hmm. So I, I think you're in good company there. I got you, boo. And I'm also former Catholic, FYI. <laughs> when is your birthday? Uh, September 18th. Okay. Virgo. Happy almost birthday and happy Virgo season. Thank you. Thank you're you. probably never wrong, <laughs> uh, but you know, you might not always be right, but you're definitely never wrong. Mm. See that that's, that's where I get a little bit. <laughs> 
frustrated with the astrology stuff because it's like it's two sides of the same coin. And I'm like, okay, I can't negate that in any way. But yeah. Um, okay, fair enough. Virgo's only one part of you, by the way. Okay. What's the other part? Um, that sounds like that's your sun sign because that's the day of the year that you're born. But you also mm. have a rising sign. So what part of the sky was in the sky when you were born? Mm. So you might, depending on what time of day you're born, um, that also will determine like your style, like how you how you move through the world. Um, and then you have your moon sign, which is like, what are you at home when you're by yourself, when no one else is around? And those are three different things. And then there's much more after that. Cool. I'm going to have to look into this now. You, I... you do live in the place. <laughs> <laughs> I don't wow. think many people wear shoes on this. Do people still wear sh shoes on the street in your town? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. They do. Okay. Um, but you're not the first person to ask me that. <laughs> Someone asked me that like five years ago, like in the grocery store, there are people not wearing shoes. I was like, really? Um, but I, I actually dig that about our, about our, our little town. Cool. Um, I think this is a fun one. What kind of personalities give you energy? And what kind of personalities take energy from you? Mm, I like this. Um... I'm an extrovert, so it's hard to for people to take energy from me. They, they're just always giving. <laughs> I, I love people. I love watching people. I love listening to people. Um, the types of personalities that are more challenging are those that are really um, – what's what I'm looking for? Those that take up a lot of space with unawareness of the amount of space they're taking up. Um also very much in white circles where uh, there will be folks who claim to be woke, but then literally don't stop talking or they don't listen to anyone or don't like pass the mic. I have a really tough time with, with folks like that. Um, I also verbally <laughs> challenge people who um, say everything with their eyes. <laughs> I talk about some of my team with this. Uh, and black women are very good at this, of saying the thing with their eyes. <laughs> just like you get this look and you're like, oh shit, I'm sure that means so much and I need to know what it means. Like, just help me understand what that means because I can't read your mind. Um, but it's it's really fascinating. I find it a really fun challenge. Um, and it's probably those two things. Like definitely the, the, the folks who are like stuck in the patriarchy, whether they're men or women, and have like no general understanding of the harm they're perpetuating and like don't make any effort to um, be transparent about the mistakes they're making because making mistakes is part of the fun. If you're not making mistakes, you're probably doing it wrong and you're probably not learning. And I have a really hard time with folks who are not willing to be on that journey. Interesting, interesting, okay. I win them over eventually. Right, and, and taking up space, that that's a really great way of saying that because it's like people can take up space in different ways, right? They can take up the airtime, they can they can waste your time, they can take up space in terms of, um, you know, taking up opportunities. Um, <clears throat> uh, so there's there's a lot to that. Okay, I got to ask you about this. Okay. On your LinkedIn, in your profile, you have a couple things that 
question. It sounds like questions you ask yourself. Okay. Regularly. Yeah. Uh, how am I using my unique skill set, experience, network, and partnerships to create opportunity and access for those for other underestimated people like me? Am I practicing courage and allowing myself to be vulnerable in the process? Is the work I'm doing today coming from a place of ego and proving worthiness, or am I serving my purpose with passion and drive? Mm -hmm. Where do these questions come from, and and how do you how do you practice them? Mm, the questions come from, I think, just experience, just self study. Again, my practice of astrology is all a way to frame self-study and gives me frameworks through which to do that and interrogate all of the things that make me who I am. I have also been, being a DEI consultant, I took a lot of time to um, be a part of workshops like Courageous Conversations. I worked with the Center for Equity and Inclusion and talked with, have spoken with so many people about what it means to hold space for others, to not perpetuate the system that we're a part of. And it's really difficult to do because it is the system that we live within makes all of this stuff so easy. All of racism, all of the perpetuation of of taking wealth away from folks who have never had it, it makes it really, really easy from our taxes to how we get our paycheck to the point where like, it's really important for us to take time to interrogate, is this because of the system I'm within or is this something that I actually want to do? And that takes a long, a long time to do. And I ask other people to do it all the time, specifically white people. I ask white people all the time to essentially say, Ignore everything you've ever known <laughs> until this up, up until this point because you will not be able to change unless you continue to interrogate every single thing you do. And so who would I be not to do that with myself? So, uh, and also I, I think a lot about being biracial, um, having a white parent, have a white female parent, uh, growing up not poor. Um, what does that give me what and where does that give me access in places where other people may not? And what am I doing with that responsibility? Am I using it only as a self-service to advance myself? Or am I really using it to um, advance the loyalties that I have? And, and a big part of my loyalties are ancestral. All of the people who came before me who absolutely suffered or maybe didn't suffer but didn't know any better because they didn't have access to the things that I have access to. That's the stuff I'm constantly thinking about. I'm interested in this connection between courage and vulnerability. How do you, how do you see those connected? And how, I mean, you mentioned courage, courageous conversations, like how have you built courage and, and how is it connected to vulnerability? Yeah. Um, so I'm totally going to butcher this. Courage is, I think, Latin for heart. I think I could be totally wrong. I might have to look that up. Um, but it's something to do with the heart, essentially. Are you moving forward with your heart? And a lot of times in our, well, in our society, courage is very much synonymous with willingness to die, willingness to go to battle, to um, put the greater good before yourself. 
and you ain't about to go die if you're not willing to be vulnerable because you're literally putting your body at risk. I learned this vulnerageous, however, working with Camp Equity, the nonprofit I was first chairwoman for and then um, later took over. And it what they were doing was programming with kids and program with kids talking about race, talking about equity, talking about gender issues. And the inspiration that we that I got from these kids and how vulnerageous they were willing to be around these issues that adults like will not touch. We um, Donnie Belcher, the the founder, termed vulnerageous because that is the, that is the practice that we were that we were showing every Tuesday night. Vulnerageous. Mm-hmm. That's a new one for me. I, I like that, <clears throat> and I I empathize with the um, you know having. I'm also multiracial, and um, and so, and it kind of ties to something you said earlier about like you know not being too you know black or not being black enough for the white kids, not being white enough for the black kids. That's something I experienced too. Mm-hmm. It's it's a pretty confusing experience, and um, and it's. Uh, it's good to hear more people talk about that because it's it's not it's not talked about that often. Um, how have you kind of come to grips with that? Like some of those those co- internal conflicts and, and thoughts. I was lucky enough to grow up with five black black aunties, and my first white aunt. She tells me this every time I see her, that when she married my uncle, before that I had no white aunties. And so I let her know, I was like, you are my favorite white aunt. (laughs) (laughs) And so I I came out of the womb saying shit like this. (laughs) (laughs) Vulnerageous from the beginning. (laughs) Um, And so I've always, I've had very little filter, which is both a blessing and a curse. Because it's not hard to get to know me. Like I I pretty much say what's on my mind. which has gotten me into a lot of situations where um, I have to be willing to take feedback and have to be willing to told to have to be willing to be told that I'm wrong and that I should really think a little bit differently about what I'm saying and how my words might impact people. And when it comes to being biracial, we are one thing that people always used to say to me when I was younger is that you have the best of both. Did anyone ever say that to you? Not that I can remember. I hated it because mm. it's like, what about the other parts? Mm-hmm. Are those not are those not cool to have either? And I would always just assume that they meant like you you're blessed because you can like kind of be white, but like the beauty you probably have comes from being black or something like that. Like mm. all the superficial stuff I get from and the culture stuff I get from being black, but all the privilege I get is from being white. These are people in your family selling you that, or ex- um, outside your family, like strangers really? growing up. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, I think the other part is like sometimes I can be really approachable. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Random stranger yeah. tells you this. To the point where now I just like have an RB uh uh an RBF. Like when I walk around, so I'm like, please don't talk to me, resting bitch face. <laughs> um <laughs> but it's on purpose. And it uh, but to answer your question, it, it it's really hard and and at the same time, if People who are excellent are always doing things that are hard on purpose. And so I think it gave me that head start of this self-interrogation because 
I was always at the intersection. And so as a professional, I stayed at the intersection often. My superpower in working with sales teams and coming on as a as a new manager, a new head of sales is that oftentimes I would come in and the sales VPs would like not have a good relationship with marketing or not have a good relationship with the product team. And I always brought those teams together because I could help translate. I could uh, context and code shift really easily, whereas a lot of white men don't really are not able to do that. Also, a lot of sales teams are mostly men. A lot of marketing teams are mostly women. So like there's so many different ways that I was able to bring disparate teams together. Same thing with um, DEI. It's like you have people in your employee resource group who are of color who are saying like, our company needs to be doing this for us. Our company needs to be doing that. Like why are they not doing this already? And me being able to take that and translate it to a white leader who's never known any black people to say like, here's what's in this for you. Here's why you doing this will be good for you, which are two completely different conversations, but I'm getting each party what they want or what they need and what needs to happen to have impact. Um, so that's kind of, that's how I deal with it. It's, it's like, what are, what are the privileges that I have that I should absolutely be using? And what are the ways that I can both, and also challenge other people who are biracial. In, in Black VC, we are a rainbow an absolute rainbow and people come from all different backgrounds and religions. Um, And there's a lot of sexism still. There's a lot of colorism. And um, I don't find it a mistake that a lot of white, light-skinned males are able to raise funds faster than dark-skinned women. And I think that's something we all have to acknowledge and appreciate and understand that the unearned privileges we have are also a responsibility. Mm-hmm. Well said. Um, if you could go back in time to yourself and visit yourself at an earlier age, when would you visit yourself and what advice would you give to yourself? Mm, I think about this a lot. Um I think I was in sixth grade, which for those of us who didn't grow up in the States, that's like age 11 to 12. We wrote a letter to our future self. And I wrote a letter to my future self at, I guess, 32, because I thought it was so old. Um, (laughs) And when I turned 32, I thought, am I that person I thought I was going to be? And I was. It was so wild. And so I, I would want to go back to that girl, um, soon to be young woman to say like, you're doing, you're doing the right thing. Everything you're doing, just keep following your nose because it's going to work out. Um, because it was really, I had a lot of trouble, a lot of anger in my early career thinking that I wasn't good enough, thinking that, um, I was doing something wrong because everywhere I looked and everyone I spoke to was reinforcing that. And most of those people were white. And um, I also know that that little girl knew that she was going to continue to struggle or be in these places where there was going to be discomfort, where she was going to be questioning um, her validity. And I think everyone goes through that experience to some, some level. It's just what you do with it. Do you let it crush you or do you use it? as like an absorption of your absorption of new powers. 
So is it that you, is it that you would tell yourself you're on the right track, but don't stress as much? Or would you, or would you just say <clears throat> you're, you're going to experience some challenges and when you've experienced those challenges, it's not that you're failing, it's that you're, you're figuring it out or, or none of the above. <laughs> yeah. If I would, <laughs> when I picture it in my mind, like me sitting at that desk, I would literally be in this blazer and just like show up and be like, yeah, for listeners, I just give myself a very aggressive thumbs up. Right. Um, <laughs> and then I think I would know what that would mean, what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> so I wouldn't even say anything. I'd be like, I got you. Okay. I got it. Right. I got you. I got it. It's a thumbs up. Um, the only thing that I would have would do differently I think what that I would tell myself is to not question myself so much. Mm -hmm. um, there are points in my in my early twenties where I questioned what I was doing a lot, and I don't think I needed to. I think I could have gotten into venture earlier. I think I could have, you know, sold my stock earlier <laughs> if I had known um, more about what it's like to exit with a company, what it's like to go through a gigantic IPO. Um, oddly enough, when we floated at Yelp. I was for some reason celebrating Lent that month and decided I wasn't going to drink uh, for Lent. And so I didn't even celebrate our IPO. I'm glad I didn't because there was some shit that went down that night and I was not there. So I dodged a bullet. Um, but like, I just had no idea how big of a deal it was. Mm, I see. And so, so some of the Catholicism is, is uh, <laughs> stayed, <laughs> stayed with you. I also had just gotten a scooter recently, like a Vespa scooter, and I was all about riding it. And I'm like, this will be my two excuses. Good, good for you. Uh, last question. Um, what would you like to say about your life when it's about to be over, when it's soon to be over? Just so, so, such simple question. Just I elementary know. softballs. Easy. Was this in the question prep? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can pass if you want. No, I got something. I think I, I have I have had the experiences and have the personality and the ancestral inheritances that give me pretty amazing superpower to connect people, to make things happen that people before me were not able to do. Not 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 able, but didn't have the capacities to do or the agency. And that I used those to the fullest, that I like kicked those doors down, that I was um, assertively aggressive in working to bring justice and righteousness to those who came before me who didn't have the agency that I do. I love that. And I and I feel like you're doing that right Appreciate now. That. So I, I I think you're on the right track. Thank you. Um, how can people follow Black VC? How can people follow Mandy? I'm fairly terrible at social media. <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, like uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is like my class, my same age. And so I was one of the first people on Facebook, but like never on Facebook <laughs> um, for several different reasons. I'd <laughs> only known in 2004 <laughs> what it was going to be. Uh, so that is all to say. <laughs> You can find me on all the socials at Mandy Bynum, including LinkedIn, Twitter, and all the social meds. Um, you can find Black VC at Black VC anywhere. We have a social media person, so we out here. 
Um, I take a lot of pictures of our events and then forget to post them. Because <laughs> I just, I'm just so in the moment, I forget to take the pictures and get the receipts. But I'm, I'm creating better habits. So um, I don't know how much information you're going to find, but you can search me on YouTube. There's some cool stuff there I found out recently that my kids don't care about because I'm not talking about them. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the Epic Human Podcast. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Mm-hmm.